Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Today I want to talk about an idea I have um, that came from an article that I um, I read recently. An article that I was prompted to from another podcast. So effectively this is going to be kind of a game of telephone to talk about approaching des- um, campaigns from a uh, the starting point of kind of um, framing what the game is going to be about or what the campaign is going to be about. And the way we're going to do that is by applying the Roadrunner rules. So let's talk about the Roadrunner rules. Okay, so recently on um, one of my favorite uh, podcasts, uh, a podcast called uh, Political Gab Fest, um, they have a feature on it, uh, a regular feature, where they end every episode with what they call cocktail chatter. And it's basically just kind of you know, interesting tidbits that uh, of news that, that don't necessarily relate to the political or legal issues that they specifically talk about. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, an odd grab bag of interesting things. And this week, um, the uh, one of the um, uh, cocktail hour or cocktail chatter uh, tidbits was a reference to an article that uh, I guess was making the rounds in certain corners of the uh, interweb uh, this week or at least at the time of recording. And that was the summary of the rules that the American animator um, Chuck Jones had put together for how to write a Roadrunner uh, cartoon. So this is, I'm I'm assuming that um, everyone listening is familiar with the old, you know, Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner uh, cartoons. What this was, was a a summary of the nine rules that he had set in. And on the podcast, they said there was 10 but what I could find when I went looking for the article were nine rules that were written about it. But um, it got me thinking that the way that the rules were structured gave consistency, not only consistency to the to the um, to the um, the actual episodes of the uh, of the cartoon. I think it also, you know, what what it got me thinking of is how limitations can sometimes spurn creativity and can focus your your creativity. And the way that I thought that might relate to gaming is for games where you're having, you know, if you may like a a role-playing game, uh, but you're having a difficult time figuring out what the hell you're going to do with it, well, one thing you could try is by adopting rules. Figure out what you want as your set of rules. And the one I'm planning for today is to go through the rules for, um, you know, for Roadrunner to talk a little bit about... uh, why I thought these were these were particularly useful, and then I want to talk about a. I'm going to end in another segment uh, talking about a particular game that I've had difficulty with. I've won. I've loved this game for years, and I've been wanting to get it to the table, but I've had a hell of a time trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to do with it. And this, the idea for the Roadrunner rules, got me thinking. Like, okay, let's not start with the game. Let's start with the rules. Let's set some some. Uh, fences down, you know, set some fence posts down, get an idea of the boundaries of this particular game, and, um, you know, and then we'll go from there. So the the Roadrunner rules are, I'm just going to summarize them, you can find them online, and they're actually pretty uh, funny to, to read, but broadly speaking, the first one is is that the, the Roadrunner um, cannot harm the coyote, so the, the Roadrunner, the only thing it can do is go beep beep, and, um, you know, irritate the, uh, what do you call it, uh, the uh, thing it cannot um, actually harm the uh, coyote in any meaningful way. It can uh, irritate him, and that's that's the extent of it. Um, rule number two. 
is that no outside force can harm the coyote. So there's nothing other, nothing else in the world can necessarily hurt the coyote, um, which relates to, I guess it relates to one of the later rules, but you know, there's nothing else in the world that's going to hurt the, the coyote. It's not going to get slammed by a, a car that it wasn't involved with or something like that. Um, rule number three, the coyote could stop at any time if he was not a fanatic. It's the fanaticism of pursuing the roadrunner that drives the coyote. Um, rule number four, no dialogue. Rule number five, um, the stories must take place. Oh, the roadrunner must always be on the road. So the roadrunner can't be, you know, run through the desert or whatnot. It's always going to be the same area. We always know where the, so the, the coyote as well will always know where the, the roadrunner is going to be. Number six, all action is to take place in the natural environments of the coyote and the roadrunner. So that's why all of them take place in what looks like a Warner Brothers cartoon version of the American Southwest. Um, the number seven, all tools come and so all tools, mechanics and whatever else come from Acme Co. So it, it sets some boundaries on, on what, um, you know, how big the world is going to be, what, uh, what different influences we're going to see in there in the same way that that one does that uh, relates to the Southwest. Uh, number eight, um, wherever uh, possible, uh, make gravity the greatest uh, enemy of the coyote. Uh, so, the uh, wherever possible, that's why we have you know ad nauseum things of the coyote running off the edge or getting you know tricked to go off the edge or whatever, and then falling down. Um, oh, one related thing. So, no outside force. That that rule. I think I was I thought there was a second rule. No outside force can affect the coyote. The coyote is only affected by the consequences of its own decisions. So it's always going to be something the coyote has set in motion is the reason that it's going to get affected or hurt or whatever. And speaking of that one, rule number nine, the coyote uh, is more humiliated than hurt. So it's that's why, you know, the the black face when a you know bomb goes off rather than and the blown back hair rather than you know <laughs> maiming and whatever else and then um the podcast added number 10 as well uh which was that the audience uh, the audience's sympathy should always be with the coyote not with the roadrunner so those are the 10 rules that uh, i mean nine rules that i can i could confirm and then one other one that apparently was in this uh, article talking about the uh, the rules for the coyote and uh, or like uh, roadrunner and coyote, but um, those roadrunner rules I thought were really interesting. Uh, not not only because you know um, I mean in fairness one of the you know one of the podcast hosts uh, Emily Bazelon she said well this is why I hate all of them is because the poor coyote never wins and because the um, you know they all felt the same and that's that's fair enough but I mean if you as a kid, I mean, I love those cartoons, and I think that the the cool thing with them is they're a great example of just how much mileage you can get out of relatively, um, you know, a relatively uh, narrow creative space in which to create things. And you know, I mean, like that's a, again, some people may react the way uh, Emily does, where it's just that that feels like repetitive nonsense. But I'm gonna talk about that as well. But I think that what what these rules do is they give you a really great starting point to figure out, okay, this is the, the limitations within which I'm going to create my world or tell my stories or, or whatever, you know? And one of the things that I think is, um, you know, that this reminds me of as well is recommend, uh, advice that the, um, 
Cobalt Press's Midgard uh, World Guide gives, which is to say, look, you know, you do not need to give a wide open, you know, slate of options for, or wide open uh, possibilities for people creating characters. It's fine to say, look, we're playing in X, Y, you know, in X location. So these are the five or four uh, species that you can play. You can create a character from those species and the existing character classes that you're going to like. And um, at the time, because, you know, I think that uh, as DMs, sometimes we, we don't want to say no. I, I know myself, like, I, I hate saying no to players when it comes to character concepts, unless it's something that I expressly think is, is really awful, but, or I mean, in the sense that it's just not going to fit in the, in the game that I want to run. But, uh, but that felt like a, a very freeing kind of, you know, bit of advice of saying like, oh yeah, I, of course, I could just say like, look, this particular game, this is not going to fit in there. You know, you uh, you can play X, Y, Z, and and I think part of that maybe to to avoid any kind of perception of the DM saying no is to make that clear from the get-go that look, this campaign is going to have these restrictions. This is the boundaries in which you're creating your character. And if people come back, and I I tried that myself in a recent campaign when I ran Iron Gods, and I still had a player who went outside those bounds, and, and to be honest, that was the reason that we're not playing that, well, no, one of the reasons at least, because that character became a continual source of, of frustration for me, because it just did not fit, it did not jive with the themes and the sensibilities of, of what I was trying to play up in that particular game. And um, so, I mean, that's not, uh, that's only in, in the context of, like, character selections, but there's all sorts of other things that you can set those... Um, you know, those boundaries uh, down for. And I mean, I think a lot of times we tend to think of, you know, the, the, the idea that more options is better, you know, like more variety, more versatility and whatnot. But I'm not sure that's necessarily always true, particularly if it results in a kind of, not analysis paralysis, but where you're just, you, you, you know, you have a hard time figuring what the specific theme of something is. You know, you think of the... Um, um, an analogy is cooking, maybe where you know you add one or two spices into a food and it gives it a specific flavor. If you add a crap ton of spices in there, it ends up tasting kind of like nothing, you know. And uh, there certainly is a place for those wide open campaigns. I think that the advantage for that for that is if there isn't a distinct feel for the setting and you're going to have more of a character focus, then maybe that's that's the way to go about it. The the overall campaign takes its um, flavor if you will, from the characters that are being played in it. But if you've got in mind a specific type of game to run, then setting those boundaries and making sure that the characters are all, you know, they all fit within the, the context of what you're trying to run, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the, the um, whatever game you're running, there's still, you know, so whatever narrow scope that you set for your game, um, the whole idea of, you know, necessity being the mother of invention Players are extraordinarily creative, uh, you know, people for the most part. I should say for the most part. All, I'm sure all are to a greater or lesser degree. And um, just because you're not allowing everything that's in a rule book or everything that's in a yeah, setting or whatever, uh, that does not mean that the character's not going to be able or the player's not going to be able to play what they want. And if they are, if they really feel like, oh, God, none of these options really work for me, well, then they're probably not going to enjoy the campaign. That what you're offering and, and what because presumably you know what you're doing presumably you're setting those restrictions and those boundaries to create a singular vision or at least a a clear expression of what it is you're trying to do you know again assuming this isn't just a campaign where you're 
you know, the, the setting doesn't really matter. Characters can play whatever the heck they want. And really, the, the it's just the play of the game or it's the focus on the characters. That's the thing that's going to really drive the, um, the, the drama or the whatever in the game. Um, the, uh, but I mean, I, I don't know, you know, like you think of many, like more, um, broadly appealing role-playing games like D and D or, I don't know, Pathfinder, you know, um, games that do not have a specific, you know, vision, a specific type of game you're supposed to play with that. And you compare it to a lot of story games that are out there, like, you know, Blades in the Dark or uh, Monster of the Week or a lot of the, I mean, I'm thinking of a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse games uh, in particular, but even games like, like Pendragon, where they have a, there's a thing they do, you know, they're not designed to be a whole bunch of different things. They're designed to be a, 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 a menu of things within a, you know, a given uh, set of boundaries. Um, D&D tries to be uh, a much broader game. There's all sorts of different things you could do with it. Look at the variety of different campaign settings that uh, have been produced for the game over the years and how di- how different they all feel. You know, Greyhawk feels very different from uh, Dark Sun, feels different from Eberron, feels different from, um, you know, the old uh, third edition, um, oh gosh, Go- Ghostlands or, or whatever it was called, the one from uh, the um, horror um, Heroes of Horror, I guess, uh, book for third edition. I mean, these are all very, very different uh, campaign settings. And the other games have a much more narrow focus on it. Like, they're everything that they uh, they include in there, be it the setting, the rules, the types of characters you play, all of that stuff is geared towards providing a very specific uh, experience. And I think that with... Um, with more wide open games um, than sometimes taking a page from the road run, you know roadrunner rules and setting down some clear ideas of, of limitations that's a good way of starting coming up with an idea of what this what your actual campaign is going to be about so that's kind of what I'm, I mean that's I think what what is what value I think I see in um, or the lesson that can be learned from these roadrunner rules let's talk about the application of them to a game I have in mind you know, one thing I actually—I was just thinking about um, the rules themselves, and w- one thing I, I want to um, to just add to that is a reflection that the um, the rules are not, uh, at least the Roadrunner rules, they don't seem to be prohibitive. They seem to be prescriptive, and what I mean by that is that it's not saying don't include Pepe Le Pew in here, don't include you know, uh, Yosemite Sam. What it says is this is what you include. So when you're considering the rules for your game, I wouldn't necessarily think of them as prohibitive. I would think of them as prescriptive. So, you know, thinking of it in terms of even something as, as generic as, you know, what um, what races you're going to play in, in your game. Uh, and a way of thinking about that rule, I would suggest... You know, and I'm just thinking of uh, of it in terms of the uh, Midgard game as well, or Midgard setting. Is you know, you would not say you cannot play any elves, dwarves, blah blah blah. You know, make your your list of of things you cannot play. Um, what you would say instead is that all character classes, uh, all or all characters, will be created uh, as humans or bear folk or trollkin or, you know, a subset of elf 
or a specific kind of dwarf. Full stop. So it doesn't say, it doesn't, you know, it, it may seem like a, a meaningless bit of, uh, you know, uh, phraseology, um, but I think it's really, imp- it's really important because it has more of a, an empowering and, you know, uh, encouraging tone to it than the maybe more, not hectoring, but more negative of saying you cannot play this, you cannot play this, you know, um, inevitably, I mean, if you have players that are, you know, boundary testers and like really what player isn't, (laughs) so you may have that, but I mean, um, what that, you know, what, what that rule would say is, you know, you, even though you're going to have to say, no, it's got to be one of these ones, you know, you, you don't even, if a player says, well, can I play a, a kobold? You, you can say all the characters, you don't even have to say, no, you don't, you can't play a kobold. You can just respond with a rule. You know, you have to play, you know, all the characters in this are going to be whatever. And I guess another thing to think of too, all the rules for the Roadrunner rules, they do give some rationale or some of them at least give rationale for why, you know, they're, they're in place. And you could even do that in your rules too. So, you know, the, uh, and not only to communicate what your rules are to the players, if you're going to share your rules with the players, but also to clarify your thinking on it. You know, if you're saying um, all characters will come from one of those species that I mentioned, uh, you know, you could set down that uh, these are the um, species that will be encountered in the course of our campaign. And it is important that the players have a connection to and participate in those communities and cultures, you know, um, that tells not only does that inform uh, rationale for why they can't play a, an outsider or like an elf or a, you know, tiefling or whatever the hell they, they decide to go from off the menu. Um, it also shows what the campaign is going to be about. I think too, it helps you clarify that, you know, this is, I'm going to be playing up in the course of this, the cultures of the bear men, the, you know, con- the struggles of that specific subtype of elf, the, um, you know, the uh, types of uh, political structures that, uh, you know, dominate the uh, bear folk clans. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's, that's an, a, a really clever thing that Jones did in that is not only, you know, provide ways of carving off um, story ideas, you know, and, and setting things where you could not go. Instead, it said, look, this is the, here's the fenced yard in which we're going to play. You can use any toy that's in here. Here's the reasons for why these toys are here. Go nuts, you know. And by having that uh, that fenced-in yard in a prescriptive rather than a prohibitive way, I think it really helps spurn creativity because it focuses you in a positive way towards... This is going to sound super flaky. Towards creation rather than hitting up against negative things. You're not pushing against the fences of that fenced-in area and, and finding, oh God, I can't go there, I can't go there. You're instead focused back on the things that are inside it. And I think I've really belabored that <laughs> metaphor. So let's maybe move on and talk about what the game I had in mind. So let's talk about the game that uh, I started thinking of when I was thinking of the Roadrunner rules. Uh, so the, the game I'm thinking of is Mage the Ascension. And uh, for those who are not familiar with Mage the Ascension... It was the third of the, you know, um, noun, the, what is it, uh, noun, the verb, uh, or now I'm probably getting that wrong, noun, the adjective, I don't know, 
my fucking failure to put points in grammar is showing here. But anyway, it's one one of the old uh, games put up by uh, White Wolf uh, back in the 90s, uh, starting with, um, I think, maybe late 80s, then early 90s. The first was Vampire the Masquerade. Second was Werewolf the Apocalypse. And the third, which was my personal favorite, was um, Mage the Ascension. So Mage the Ascension is a game about a a bunch of different really, really big ideas. I'm going to attempt to sort of give an elevator pitch to what is a 900-page rule book in the most recent edition. Um, but uh, what Mage the Ascension is, is uh, a game where you are playing a character. Uh, you're playing a character in a world where uh, reality and the way that all the physical rules and uh, metaphysical rules that uh, govern that reality are effectively up for popular opinion. So the the reason that in that world you know that electricity will pass through wires and then go and power a device and whatnot is because enough people more or most people believe that's the way it works you know but this was not always the case uh, reality is a, a function of majority consensus and whoever controls that consensus controls what reality is uh, within the context of that world, there are different factions that are, you know, that are struggling against each other, and you play a character who is thrown into that world, who has the ability to impose their own belief system, their own way of understanding reality on that, and that's what you're playing as a mage, a mage who, you know, can use their the basically the power of their soul to rewrite the rules of reality to varying degrees and um, you can at times suffer a consequence for bucking the you know, consensus reality system. Um, so that's very, very broad strokes what the, the game is about. The, the factions, broadly speaking, are kind of divided into three different areas. There are the kind of, um, no, four, I guess. There's uh, like devil-worshipping things called, uh, or and I mean devils running the gamut from anything evil and antediluvian uh, from, you know, uh, Christian uh, Lucifer kind of figures to, you know, other kind of like Lovecraftian on noble things. Uh, that's one sect, the Nefandi. There's the Marauders who are kind of uh, uh, mages who have transcended the bounds of consensus reality, but at the cost of their sanity. When you are not moored to any consensus reality, you kind of lose your ability to interact with that uh, reality. And, um, and two other factions. The one is the traditions, and one is the technocracy. The technocracy is basically the the group or the the faction that won the ascension war. Um, you know, it's it's uh, you know, mages who come from that are high tech things like biomancers or you know cyberneticists or things like that. You know, uh, all all the sort of uh, tropes that um, make up sort of techno thriller or uh, near future sci fi kind of stuff. And that runs the gamut from like Terminator to you know body horror stuff to um, X Files ask you know conspiracy, um, and then the other faction, the remaining one is the uh, traditions. And the traditions are basically the grab bag of all the different leftover beliefs, the things that used to be true, the mystics, the shamans, the witch doctors, the you know or oracles. All the different things fit under that, uh, or for the most part, fit under that umbrella. Although there all are some you know, folks who don't align to um, any uh, faction. So uh, this is a game, I, like I said, I, I've loved it. I ran it a bunch as a kid. Uh, I, it just, and it's one of those games that just um, 
it changed my perspective on not not only games but like you know life in in general it was such a fascinating idea uh, behind that that um yeah, I just, uh, you know, and it's such a great metaphor for how people uh, live their lives as well, too. Uh, you know, the, the importance that belief can have on um, on the, you know, quote-unquote world that people inhabit. Um, and, and the perspective that that uh, affords, both the, the benefits and the, uh, the limitations that come from that. So, um, I have, re- you know, in the last couple of years, they, uh, a company called Onyx um, Path Press has put out a 20th anniversary edition of uh, Mage the Ascension, which is just amazing. I love the book. I love the content. It's this really like authoritative kind of, as it were, last word on the uh, on the game. The trouble is, is I, I we've had one effort to try and get this to the table, where uh, we started creating characters, and I did not have any idea what the game was going to be about. And I thought, well, let's just we'll go this way, and we'll start creating the character, and then I'll figure out what the game's going to be about afterwards. And then, sure enough, I had no fucking clue what to do with it because it just it is such a wide open setting. Like you could focus not not only are there all these different really really fascinating ideas and uh, characters and adversaries and whatnot that come from each of those different. Um, possible adversaries like just thinking of it from the dm side there is also the um um there's also the i mean the the wide variety of uh specific ideas from each of them you know and how they might interact with the different player characters and it's really hard to predict what a player character is going to look like in that game because it's so personal and it's so specialized so how do you figure out what the hell a campaign is going to be about um but also allow that that you know that space for the player creativity in making their character because that's a, a big part of it is informing the magic that your that each of the individual player characters is going to be using is um, is inherent in their character and their backstory and and everything that, that that character is because it's their view of the world you know it's not like uh, it's not like um, you know um, it's, it, it and I don't mean to make the sound as if it's it's just it's not as shallow as you know I'm going to play a magic user in D&D you know or a mage or whatever you're going to call it in whatever edition that you prefer it's it's more than that it is all about the specific perspective that character has so it's not like you can just pick up and play and discover that character as you go you really do kind of have to to, to have it mean something you got to have to have that idea beforehand but um what I got thinking so I mean as a result of that I kind of had this continual analysis paralysis about that game and and every new book that came out for it there recently there was a book of effectively like um uh a book of adversaries and allies that came out that's it's awesome it's got so many cool ideas in it but i just it just further added to my what the hell am i going to do with all this stuff like i have no idea where even to start to try and form an idea but i got to thinking about the roadrunner rules so what if i just set a little you know a little barrier and start sending some rules down of like this is what this is going to be about so I sat this afternoon and I, I just as I mean I was at work this afternoon but as ideas came to me I started jotting down some things. So what I want my one of my rules for my roadrunner rules for mage will be that the technomancers are cold war adversaries and all others are hot war adversaries. Because at the time uh or the in the like quote unquote official kind of timeline of um the most recent edition of Mage the Ascension, things have sort of settled down. There's kind of a a Cold War, you know, 
not actively fighting each other thing between the traditions and the technomancy, or tech, yeah, technomancy, uh, technocracy. Sorry, not technomancy. Technocracy uh, that um, so that other things can be adversaries. You know, like um, rival mages or spirits or you know humans or uh, marauders or nefandi. And while there still is that tension, you know, there can be some. They're not on, at an active war fighting every time they see, but they're constant antagonists. Uh, so th- I like that. So that, that's that's one way to focus on it, that the technocracy will always be there. Uh, the next thing I put down is technocracy is omnipresent, but not omnipotent. So my idea being is that it's always there, you know, like when you, you cannot escape them, you you go to the, you know, to the, um, the mall, you go to your, you know, the, um, you go to any place monitored by a, a traffic camera and you can feel them. They're, they're watching you. You know, they've got their, their um, web spirits or whatever, you know, whatever they call them, um, that are lurking around on there and tracking sort of your movements and trying to keep an eye on you. You know, um, you can see the influence of the technocracy every time you turn on a, 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 uh, the TV or the, you know, you're watching YouTube and, a, and an ad pops up. That's part of the, of the syndicate, the, one of the factions in, in, within the technocracy. So they're always there, but they're not omnipotent. They can't always get there. They're, they're limited in their resources. You know, in the same way that the traditions are as well, they, they find themselves maybe stretch a little too far. So they can always be, a th- and that, that sort of plays into the idea that um, it's always going to be a, um, it's always going to be a, a theme, a flavor in there. And sometimes it'll be an um, adversary, sometimes it won't be, but it's, it's always a consideration the players have to keep in mind that while it's in a cold phase, the Ascension War is still very, very real. The last one I jotted down, and I'm not sure this one yet, I put down, exploration always expands the world. And what I was thinking of that is not just, I'm thinking that in the broadest possible interpretation. So it's not just that when you literally go somewhere new, you it, it expands the, the world. Um, what I mean by that is by starting off with a very small kind of... Uh, you know, bound in area that's going to be kind of defined by the rules and then the characters will be made within that, that every time you do go beyond that, like let's say you go on a metaphysical quest to some other world or chain or, or whatever, and you encounter a um, some kind of supernatural being, well then that world will now become part of the world and it will, it will have um, a flavor in there too. If you suddenly start interacting with say, you know, there's a, a really great scene where you're dealing with um, again, going back to maybe like web spirits, you know, you've you've done a um, a summoning ritual or uh, or something like that, and you call up a spirit of the local you know uh, internet. Um, well, then that creature, whatever that thing beca- ends up becoming defined as, um, or that spirit, then that be- would become something that might show up again. You know, so what that does is it, in the same way that like you know um, uh, things like the uh, like Star Wars or Iron Man or the, the Marvel Universe, you know, where they start small and they start slowly introducing more, you know, bombastic elements to the to the thing to the point where you know the in the third film of you know uh, uh, Star Wars, you can see the Emperor shooting lightning out of his hands, you know, which is crazy. If you just had people doing that in the first film, it would have maybe, you know. Um, it may have broke, you know, affected the immersion and the and the willingness for the audience to swallow it. Similarly, you know, we start the Marvel Universe with 
Iron Man with a dude building a suit that is it's it's fantastical technology but it's understandable as technology and then we end at a point where they're using magic stones to snap and disintegrate half the universe while that plan is being opposed by a talking raccoon and a talking tree that is its adopted son you know like that's again if you'd opened with that stuff maybe it wouldn't have been swallowed as as easily but this is sort of a way of allowing that world to expand organically while um while starting off in a manageable uh state now those are the only three rules i've got so far i'm going to give it some more thought but even that is helping me narrow down what i want to make of this very very sprawling you know massive ideas game to make it into a manageable way and I'm trying for each of these two in the same way that the Roadrunner rules are prescriptive. I'm, I'm trying to... I didn't intend that when I uh, when I first wrote them down, but I see that's what I'm kind of doing. You know, is, is that I'm, I'm trying to make them in a prescriptive uh, kind of way. So it's given me a really helpful starting point for grappling with this uh, game that I just... I had a real hard time wrapping my head around how am I going to make a game of this. And I, I if you find that you are struggling with a game as well where you're you can't you know you've got your you've got your full knowledge of everything that's in there and to be honest it's something similar to what i i realized in retrospect now i while i was on my vacation uh last week at the time of recording last week i went through the process of creating a character uh with in uh, RuneQuest glorantha uh, with my uh, a buddy of mine and the you know that exercise helped crystallize what that game was going to be about and i think a good chunk of that is because it you know and for those who are unfamiliar the most recent edition of RuneQuest, and i'm not familiar with any previous edition so i can't speak as to whether this is the way it's always been but this edition when you create your character you also create a full um backstory for your uh, or at least a, a history for your character's parents and your character's grandparents and it's situated in the setting of the game so you know your characters will be um, your characters will have a full understanding of how that history has shaped your family and uh, you can generate your expanded family as well too and we went through all of that and at the end of that I'm like I can't wait to write like I had started seeing ideas for how I was going to write stories for that character and adventures for that character and that is awesome I mean you know in, in, uh, in a roundabout way you know that's a way to make that not roundabout it's a very very direct way and clearly intended by the designers so kudos to them that you go through that process and that by limiting you know by setting not limiting by setting the rules for what is you know that character is about what they care about um you know what's happened to their family uh, and so forth and what's happened to the characters once you get to the the character's uh, backstory it really helps set the rules for what that campaign is going to be about you know and uh and that's I think yeah that's that is a really helpful way of um, of approaching some of these games and I need to make sure I for myself I need to bear this in mind going forward when I've got a game that I'm like I love it I love all the ideas in here but what the hell am I going to do with it I'm going to start by setting rules it's going to be set in X area we're going to track the nobility we're going to track the you know uh, the uh, low life it's the view from the gutter you know it's the whatever like whatever whatever you choose to sort of frame that thing. Uh, that campaign is being about that's um that's great and there's nothing wrong with uh you know with setting those limitations but which by setting those rules they're going to invariably mean that some things will not apply you know a roadrunner cartoon is not going to be set in downtown manhattan um but 
that doesn't mean that the game is any weaker or the stories are any weaker for it. It just helps you be clear as to what that specific story is about. The last thing I'll end with too that I'm thinking is that you can set those rules, but for your campaign, you know, one of the ways to really think forward on it, to talk about, you know, shaking things up and and really cataclysmic events is for when you do break those rules. You know, like you say in mine, you know, that, that there's a cold war between the techno, uh, technocracy and the traditions and, and the hot wars with everyone else or, or, you know, whatever other adversaries they're meeting. Well, what happens when that cold war becomes a hot war? Well, presumably if we've been playing for a while and that's the sensibilities of the game, in the same way that suddenly the, you know, the uh, coyote and the roadrunner finding themselves in Manhattan would be a very jarring of like, holy shit, things are different now. And I mean, that might register like, okay, well, that's just, you know, that, that's just lame because you're not following the rules. You're getting, I've mentioned before, you know, you, you li- I like soy sauce. I like vanilla ice cream. I don't want to have soy sauce on my ice cream. Um, but um, if you've got to, to prevent any kind of feeling of sameness and stagnation, you know, the, the kind of um, feeling that uh, Emily had or one of the things that she uh, criticized those cartoons for of being all the same, that's one way to show evolution, to show progress on that. The you know, Roadrunner cartoons and the uh, you know um, Coyote cartoons, uh, Roadrunner Coyote cartoons. They don't need to go anywhere. They are intended to be the same thing. But if you want to see it growth, well, that's when you cross out the rule and put a new one down. And that's when you, that is a way of showing evolution in your in your campaign too, and still helping you understand what it's actually about. So, so that's what my my, my how I'm think I'm going to start approaching these rules. And um, hopefully that will be, you know, helpful for you uh, in some way to uh, either to, you know, structure a campaign that uh, you're going to get going to to manage an existing campaign or help articulate what an ongoing campaign is actually about um, or to, uh, you know, uh, to to figure out how to shake up your campaign. You know, once you've set down what you've managed as your rules, how do you want to really shake things up with that? And one of the ways of doing that is changing the rules. So. Anyway, that is that. Let's get with the outro. So those are the Roadrunner rules as applied to Mage the Ascension. Um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this uh, episode, please don't hesitate to... Uh, you can shoot me a voice message on Anchor. Uh, you can reach me on uh, Twitter at Dungeon Musings. And you can uh, uh, reach, reach me by email at dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Um, I'll also quickly give a quick reminder that uh, from the time of recording is about two weeks and change uh, between now and when we're having our draw for the uh, charity raffle where uh, the grand prize is a copy of Beetle and Grimm's Platinum Edition Dragon Heist box set. Uh, we just received from them. They were very, very generous and donated a copy of the Sinister Silver Edition of the Ghost of Saltmarsh. Uh, that's the um, kind of a, a more... A uh, smaller version, a smaller box, more kind of condensed version of the uh, Platinum Edition box set. But I, I did an unboxing of that on my YouTube channel recently. So you can actually see that a couple days ago, to be honest. And uh, it's really, really awesome. It's, it's easily got as much content as the other thing. So uh, it's just in a more um, portable and uh, smaller uh, content. I've, I've got a copy I bought for myself. And then they also donated a copy as well. So that's another one of the great prizes that are available for that charity raffle. Uh, there's also a, a core rulebook for the RuneQuest Glorantha uh, RPG from Chaosium. There's a core rulebook for the uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition. Uh, core rulebooks for 
the Legend of the Five Rings uh, role-playing game from Fantasy Flight Games, and, uh, oh gosh, uh, core rulebooks for the Delta Green role-playing game, as well as a bunch of other uh, assorted uh, products, including some uh, print, some PDFs, uh, tons of great stuff. And uh, you can learn all about that by going to the Heroes Save Villages uh, website. Actually, if you go to my YouTube channel, the, the shortest route is go to my YouTube channel, which is also called Dungeon Musings. And you can find a link on any of the recent videos that'll take you straight through to the SOS Children's Villages International kind of sub campaign page <clears throat> that we have for the Heroes Save Villages campaign. And um, for every $25 that's donated, and that's Canadian dollars too, so... As uh, regular listeners may know, uh, that the Canadian dollars are made mostly of maple, so they are worth a lot less than American. So it's by American, it works out uh, up to about twenty bucks. So uh, for every twenty-five dollars Canadian that's donated, you're entered once into the raffle, and then on July first, we'll be doing the draw. And uh, there's a bunch of great prizes. So um, if um, you're inclined to uh, toss a couple uh, bucks towards the SOS Children's Villages International Charity and uh, toss your hat in the ring, as it were, to try and win some very cool gaming prizes, then uh, that's where you can do that. Otherwise, I'll just say thanks so much for listening, and I will see you again soon. Until then, happy gaming.